0: state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet
1: because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality
2: they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think
0: Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines, I'm Neil Bradley, with me as always, Mr. Joe Quinn. Hi there. We're also joined this week by SOT editors Corey Shink.
1: Hello everybody.
0: And Shane Lachance. Hey everyone. So, on September 30th, 2015, Russia intervened in Syria, setting off a whole chain of events, which, though they haven't ended the fighting, have at least stabilized the situation in much of Syria brought about a series of ceasefires and a tentative UN-mediated peace process. Now, we and you listeners, we all knew very well that the Russians weren't just going into Syria to defeat ISIS as part of the international war on terror, blah, blah, blah. They were doing that. But more than that, they were doing so in the understanding that Islamic State and most, if not all, of the so-called moderate rebels were proxy mercenaries doing the U.S. and NATO's bidding, namely assisting in the overthrow of President Assad of Syria. Or at least laying the groundwork for some intervention that might have come from NATO down the line. The thing is, though, in all of this, we might have realized what was going on, but the thing we and you need to remember is that there's a wider audience out there are still largely ignorant. Now, when this happened last year, ordinary Americans and Europeans and people all over the world cheered Russia for doing the right thing and give out about their own government sitting on their hands. But the whole truth, in quotes, was, was still a ways off. Namely that these terrorists, these people that they spent the last three years, or at least two years, since ISIS came on the scene, talking up as the most evil manifestation of evil since the beginning of time were and are in fact their own creatures. So nothing has changed at the same time and yet everything has changed or potentially can change from this point on. Um, Anti-Russian hysteria, you might have thought would have at least decreased while Russia was now on our side, but no, no, If anything, it increased in scale completely, went off the charts. It was already at record levels, of course, because of Ukraine and Russia, quote, annexing Crimea. But then it just went even worse a year ago. Not that that mattered to the Russian government. They seem to have had a plan. In fact, I mean, Putin did say right off the bat, yeah, we're going in and we've got a plan. We're going to be there for a number of months. He didn't say how long. They just got on with it, and then they did pull out. At least there was a significant drawdown in the Russian air force involvement. I'm um, trying to think of some basic stats on what's happened. If we look at the mission statement of why they went in to get rid of the terrorists, anyone got any ideas? I came across one, but the problem here is that nobody even knew what kind of numbers of proxy forces were in the country. Um, Russian deputy security chief in May this year announced that they'd killed 28,000 militants, he called them, terrorists. That And he calculated that was a third of all ISIS forces in the country. That's a, that's a serious number. Well, that's a significant blow to
3: you know you take any organization and you take out a third of it, and you know that you can't look at ISIS as any typical organization. But you know uh, you think about just the um, you know the, the the type of things that they were trying to plan and uh, entrench themselves with, and and you know taking out a third of those forces,
0: that's got to do some serious damage. Exactly to morale, if nothing else. And we saw that. I mean, from the beginning, there were uh, reports that they, they were fleeing. You know, right. scurrying like rats. Um, now, that wasn't the whole story because obviously there are a lot of people still there. I'm with this group. I'm with that group. Whatever. They're motivated and or paid enough to still be there. But there were nonetheless <laughs> reports of them. Um, of course, there was the. This happened right. I don't remember when this happened. This happened about two months into. Um, the refugee issue being all over the media that in itself was going back a few years anyway but it had been about two months since um, the kid on the beach Mm -hmm. since the deaths seemed to increase since the numbers of them reaching the Balkans and Greece massively ramped up Um, and right away one of the stories well no in fact this, this narrative had already been going on that uh, beware these refugees because there's ISIS among them, mm-hmm. and th- there were reports then that uh, <laughs> these guys were shaving off their beards, ditching yeah. the camel gear, and joining refugee camps in Turkey or elsewhere. Mm. Well, in in reflection
3: to that too, you know, um, a lot of the refugees are coming from all we're coming from all over, uh, and it wasn't just Syria, but for the media to pick up on it at that time when Russia was, you know, really uh, going into Syria, that made the attention go on to then, oh, Russia's irresponsible for, and I think there was even, you know, several politicians uh, maybe in Europe who came out and were saying, well, this is because of Russia.
2: Yes,
0: but my memory of that sequence was that that came a little bit later. Initially, they didn't ham on about that because Russia doing that with, the refugee crisis already front and center was impeccable timing in the sense that Europeans, at least, were able to go, "Oh, God, someone's doing something about it." It brought more. It brought it brought a kind of a, a let's do something. A sense of oh, good. So you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now you're right, though. Later on, that they, they did start to that that narrative began to appear. Oh well, the refugee crisis. Uh, it's, it's obviously being made worse or they retrospectively put its origins back to uh, Russia intervening and just completely forgot that they had been droning on and on about it for months prior to that.
4: Well, the refugee crisis really started, um, first came on the scene after NATO bombed Libya. It was actually the refugees that were coming from uh, Libya right. across to Italy that was actually the first problem with refugees because uh, it, was, it was all about Italy at that time. You know, the the situation in Syria only developed after that, you know, so there's already a well-established uh, refugee problem. But that's kind of interesting because what I th- when I think about ISIS, my main question is trying to understand where they come from and how they get into these places like Syria. I mean, if that's one-third of the ISIS forces in Syria, then, and if, as we assume, as, as we've been saying, ISIS is effectively a proxy army for Western powers. My question is, where do you get 90,000 irregular so-called Muslim jihadis? eBay? Where do you get them? How do you get them in there? Um, And how do
3: you do the organizing to to get them all there?
4: Right. I mean, there's some serious logistics going on there, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, it makes sense. It should make sense to anybody that, you know, 90,000 men don't just suddenly become uh, armed to the teeth and able to, you know, run rampant, run rampant across a country without some kind of backing from someone. You know, you just, uh, you, just you have a financier, a pretty mm. big financier somewhere. Uh, like Saudi Arabia, with, uh, with perhaps. The, well, yeah, but... There's some
0: good even, research now that a chunk of them came from Libya. Mm.
4: Yeah, well, there has to be. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that was a staging ground, effectively. And, in fact, I think Libya... Is actually, I mean, they're in Libya. There's some talk about ISIS in Libya now, or there has been over the past year or so. But Libya seems to be really just a staging ground for ISIS. Um, I'm sure they kind of come from from other areas here and there. But I mean, of course, we have to remember that in Libya, in the, in the bombing of the NATO bombing of Libya in 2011, for most of that year actually, uh, and the overthrow of the and murder of Gaddafi, um, that was done by. Rebels, jihadi, black African—not all, but some black African rebels—and and and others, other Arab uh, rebels. So, and then you had the whole situation in uh, Benghazi with uh, mm-hmm. Ambassador Stevens and uh, the the kind of gun running. What seems to been the situation there was that weapons that were taken from uh, Libyan government or military uh, arms depots were taken out or being run by the CIA effectively in in cahoots with these jihadis across to uh, Syria to to prepare the ground for the the attack on Syria. But the interesting thing about um, the refugee crisis and all of this, well, before I get into that, I was going to say that I figure, you know, the US has been around much of the Middle East for quite a long time. Uh, I mean, of course, the whole deal with Osama bin Laden was that he was... uh, the U.S.'s best friend back in back in the late '70s and '80s in Afghanistan, he was uh, not he himself. Well, actually, he himself, but and people like him, the Taliban, etc., were basically freedom fighters, according to uh, Brzezinski and people like that at the time. They were supported by the U.S. in Afghanistan against the the Russians, and it's no coincidence that we have exactly the same situation today, actually in Syria, that uh, similar jihadis are. Being supported by the West as freedom fighters in Syria, effectively against the Russians, so it's bizarre, you know. It's kind of just being transported like thirty-five years or more back in time to Afghanistan, and the same dynamic is playing out. Except back then it was a Cold War; now it's Cold War Part Two or something the um, so, yeah so they 've been around al- enough the u s has been in Afghanistan obviously for fifteen years in Iraq for quite a long time, and even before that, for twenty or thirty years they 've been all over the Middle East and stuff. so I can imagine and there 's some mention after in terms of Afghanistan pr- preparing the Taliban, the jihadis to uh, attack russia in in Afghanistan uh, that <clears throat> um, the u s was facilitating with at the time, even with Saudi Arabia and other uh, other countries facilitating the setup of like, thousands of madrasas or religious schools where young men would be taken in, you know, with nothing else to do uh, and be schooled in the way of of, uh, the force, I mean, jihad. And uh, so I can imagine that today, at this stage after all of that history and that infrastructure being set up, that the average, you know, kind of, uh, let's say, even just name some countries, Libyan, Egyptian, I mean, it's Libyan since two th- before 2011, but, you know, Saudi Arabian, Iraqi, uh, Iraqi, uh, Jordanian, Jordan. I don't know, Turk, uh, Egyptian, Yemen, I don't know, Afghanistan, you go over that far as well, who, who was at a loose end, basically. You know, it's kind of like uh, kids in the U.S. who are just out of high school or something and say, what are you going to do? Uh, I, think well, I think I'll join the military. Well, the option in, in the Middle East for the past 20 or 30 years for, for those kind of kids who had no other options other than join the military was uh, I think I'll join jihad or I'll think some aspect of that. I'll, I think I'll join that madrasa and go and have some jihad somewhere. You know that basically there's this uh, infrastructure set up for, for quite a long time to to produce these kind of jihadi fighters um, or at least train them and then have them available. And there's probably ramified networks that are dealing with these kind of people and you know people in key positions. Uh, orga- uh, running these schools, etc., and running the training camps, who 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 are, you know, in touch with Western intelligence, basically, and Western intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA and MI fa- MI six and stuff, uh, decided quite a long time ago that this was going to be part of their uh, uh, asymmetric warfare or uh, fourth generational war, whatever, whatever they call it, where it's basically you don't put your own army in there; you have a proxy army to to do, the, do your bidding, you know. Um, and th- so the, th- the thing is about Libya is that as this refugee crisis started, yeah, and it was a genuine refugee crisis, but I'm pretty sure at that time there were also a bunch of refugees, quote-unquote, fleeing from Libya, but they weren't going to Greece or they weren't going to uh, Italy. They were going slightly further east and ending up in Turkey on the coast, Mediterranean coast of Turkey, and then it was just a short trip down the kind of highway uh, in Turkey and into into Syria uh, and straight down on top of the uh, Aleppo or the Aleppo government, you know. And so this this is, I mean, this is a, as this is the kind of maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but the whole question of um, well, before I get, let's let's follow what were we talking about before I I, I go on too far here. What stage are we at uh
0: well, I was going to give a summary of the whole thing and where we're at today, and mm. then we can go back and
4: well yeah, okay, do that because because um, where we're at today kind of refers to what i'm going what, what, what I wanted to mention
0: um well, I was saying that the Russians got on with it they had a plan they executed it, despite all the b s thrown at them about what they were doing um and then they did what they said they were going to do. After six, mm, four, five four months? months, they announced the drawdown. And um, they didn't say we're leaving and then pretend that they weren't. They said, well, no, we're staying, but it's going to be a significant drawdown. And they did. They withdrew the bulk of their fighter jets anyway. Uh, although they left a lot of heavy, heavy work marine, like this missile system, the S 400 to protect their base normally, but it, it ends up protecting much of the airspace over Syria. Um, Interestingly, that was announced on March 15th. March 15th is the eyes of March. Now, <laughs> if you look back at the pattern of the 2000s, that's the time typically when NATO likes to go to war. And I wonder if Putin announced that, chose that day as a kind of an extra fake, sort of symbolic reference. Anyway, on the March 15th they announced the drawdown. That was another first. A, a humanitarian intervention which you could actually call it that and then saying, well, we're going to be there a number of months and then we're leaving and then actually doing it. So that was the first in itself. Um, Since then, there have been a series of ceasefires. They've grown in length. uh, They they never really lasted, but there were at least truces. One day, let's just stop fighting for one day. That, well, success or not, 48 hours, two days. Okay, 72 hours. Let's just try. And it's it's, that's that's grown in... in, uh, scale a bit until this most recent one which was to be a week and none of them ever succeeded from the point of view of two sides in good faith just saying well let's just stop a second because it was only ever one side that stopped in good faith the Russian slash Syrian side on every occasion it's known there's no not even the Americans dispute this on every occasion the terrorists use the chance to regroup rearm reposition and keep firing and everything, civilians primarily. Um, <clears throat> well, and I think it's uh, you know it's nice to point out that
1: uh, the U.S. had dropped what, several thousand bombs on Syria, you know, in their "quote unquote" war against ISIS, but it never managed to actually even damage ISIS's oil infrastructure. But within mm-hmm. those first few months, uh, Russia was in there and just laid waste to a huge amount of their oil infrastructure, which was a large part of the of their way to, you know, make
0: a make their living. So they said. So they said. But someone else has pointed out that, you know, the oil price was tanking at that time, and these guys didn't look like they were running out of supplies. And so I think something, they had a kind of a, an underwritten insurance contract somewhere because the money kept coming in, the weapons kept coming in. I think I think in retrospect that was part of the narrative. You remember when ISIS blew up on the scene and it was like, oh, this is not only the world's biggest terrorist organization, it's the world's richest ever because they just went into Mm -hmm. a bank in Mosul and stole 400 million US dollars, which we just left hanging there, and they've gone and taken it, and now they're like, oh my God, they're so big. Was that kind of like giving some plausible reason Mm, for why they're...
1: Well, they had a number of different... Well, they said uh, a number of uh, reports came out saying that they were making their money off kidnapping, you know, off hostage-taking, off of their taxation and all that. They did really try and establish this ISIS as being a separate sort of entity, that it wasn't receiving massive amounts of money from, you know, the shady uh,
0: puppet masters there. Mm. Right, they wanted to distance ISIS any involvement of giving arms to the rebels, which has already been long accepted and, you know, public knowledge at this point. They want to say, well, no, no, we're not giving arms to these guys. They're different. Absolutely. But uh, in the course of the U.S. and the Western powers having to adjust their narrative about Syria since last year, whichever way they've turned, they have a situation now, a year later, where you've two totally divergent narratives on what's going on there and never the twain shall meet because there's, there's no way you can reconcile one with the other. The Russians, in a sense, have given the US every opportunity to fold their BS narrative and to join in what the Russians say they're doing and are actually doing. But obviously we've seen their answers to that. Extremely egregious answers recently by blowing up Syrian troops and probably hitting an aid convoy to blame it on Russia. We know they've already hit hospitals in Afghanistan and probably also in Syria. So with such divergent narratives it seems we're at this point today what they think, they well they don't even think about it, they just have to keep going with it. And mm-hmm. the Tension between the two sides is probably as tense as it'll ever be. If there's more to come, there could be. But, uh, I mean, we've got people making statements now in in Congress, in uh, public hearings, that, you know, that Senator Bob Graham saying to uh, the top U.S. general, what can we do about the situation? We want this political goal to remove Assad. And the general telling him, if that's the political goal, we're going to war with Russia and Syria. And it's left hanging in the air like, okay. Uh, and that's the, that's, that's the question we're going to try and answer today. How realistic is that scenario? Um, I know everyone's thinking about it, Some people are saying, yeah, it's going to happen. Is it really, though? Just as a general point, though, among all the other changes that have happened as a result of Russian intervention, consider this, that for the first four years, more or less, of this issue of the Syrian conflict, in quotes, all that a Western audience certainly had to go on about what was happening there, was what the media was telling them based on one particular source, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is this mm-hmm. guy who we know was an informant, a criminal. He was in prison in Syria until he went to Britain, tapped up by British intelligence. He becomes a go to guy, a, a, a primary source for the narrative about what's going on there. And this is part of the splitting realities, if you like. Russia goes in and brings cameras with them. <laughs> they they show you everything they're mm-hmm. doing they say we bombed this site and there's a video footage of it happening we say these were the consequences and then an RT journalist goes into the town that's been liberated and interviews the people and shows you what's going on you can see it it's interactive it's real time the West doesn't have that doesn't have that access doesn't want that access doesn't want to know they're happy with this former Pisa guy in his apartment in Coventry informing the whole world about what's going on in Syria
4: which is yeah basically the Western governments or Western intelligence agencies informing themselves or and then informing the media yeah uh, because these are obviously um, Western aligned uh, agencies that are there for specific propaganda purposes to to catapult the American, uh, the Western propaganda about Syria and that's all it is but of course it's it's pretty it's it's a it's effective because they're able to, they have access to people's minds and people's ears basically via via the media and they tell them plausible truths uh, and avoid the actual facts of the situation. So people, um, especially the kind of more emotionally manipulative uh, news, that's what they really focus on, you know, bombing hospitals and bombing civilians and etc, etc, as if, I mean, you hear journalists talk about this and, you know, there's a BBC interview with uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, a few days ago, and the BBC journalist was just, it's just a joke, like, I mean, I don't know how that guy ever got a job, you know, I I suppose he got a job because he got a job to be, to do what he's doing, which is present the Western, Western propaganda to, to, on, on everything and anything but he's talking to Lavrov and he's saying, you know, but you're bombing children, you're bombing hospitals. We've seen the pictures and stuff. And it's like, where was he when the U S and the Brits were bombing Iraq? He, was, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, interviewing the British foreign minister, accusing him of bombing hospitals, which they did in Iraq and bombing civilians, which they did en masse in Iraq. He wasn't interviewing the, uh, the then, uh, secretary of state, Colin Powell, or whoever came after him. um, Hillary Clinton. So it's just it's you know the the one sidedness of it is so, and the hypocrisy of it is just you know it's galling. I mean, how anybody with just you know half a brain cell or a few brain cells rubbed together could actually stomach that kind of stuff is is beyond me. You know, but some that- people want the the, the nice uh, the nice easy comfortable uh, story that uh, maintains the Western image of being yeah.
1: freedom and democracy. Of yeah, Cavers. being the country that goes and spreads that freedom and rescues the people, you know right. that's what they want to know. Is when they watch the news that they, that we went in and we rescued Libya from that evil Gaddafi, and that's the narrative that will stick, you know. And they'll just try and anchor that in. And, it's like a child's fairy story, yeah? you know,
4: that they're telling these people. These adults listening listening to the evening news are like children because they're being told a fairy story that that's like. Uh, the good guys and the bad guys, you know, the goodies, and we are the good guys, and those bad guys out there come and get us, and yeah, and then the bad, and then the good guys like us, we win, and we get the bad guys, and people are like, ah, oh, that's so nice, I love that. And it's like, don't you realize you tell those stories to your child to make them feel good, and because you want to kind of protect them from the realities of the world, that reality is much more complex, and there aren't really good guys and bad guys in that sense, you know, it's particularly in position, the people in position of power, you know, around the world. So, I mean, do, would parents, you know, adults in the West listening to that who have children not kind of feel a little bit of... They no pride, effectively, not in their own supposed adulthood that they're listening to what is obviously a child's fairy story sold to them, all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff? I mean, the world isn't like that. You know, you got to grow up and face the world as it is. You don't... You can't just... You can't live your whole life uh, thinking in terms of, you know, the boogeyman the bad man Saddam Hussein has come to get you. But don't worry because we're the good guys and we're going to get him first mm-hmm. and then we're going to win and we're all going to stand outside the White House and, you know, shout USA five, a, five million times.
3: That's a really accurate description of U.S. media, actually. And, uh, you know, I remember when – and that that's when the media actually goes in and, and talks about this stuff. A lot of times, you know, there's no coverage at all and I remember – Right after uh, the Russian invasion, there was like a complete media blackout for maybe the first three days to a week. Mm-hmm. You couldn't find anything, didn't know, nothing.
4: Didn't know what to say. Yeah. They were shocked. Yeah, yeah
3: they, they, there wasn't any of the supporting yeah. narrative and yeah, they had to go into right high gear.
4: The, right, the fact that that, uh, that that happened, you had this kind of like just silence, you know, mm-hmm. stunned silence type thing is is evidence. Uh, that in government circles in the West, that they were equally shocked, that they didn't know what to say, because usually they'd have a narrative. Usually they they like to think that they were able to see this kind of thing coming, and that Russia would have shown its hand. There would have been talk, in, you know, in the international media about Russia, you know, building up the kind of uh, the the rhetoric or the or the. Or the the, the the speeches etc. to mm. to to prepare the world for this invasion. That's what the West does, right? They they spend quite a long time demonizing the the leader of the country they're going to invade and stuff. So it's all ready, and the media's you know done their homework, and they've got all the sound bites ready to go on the moment that Obama gets on TV and says, "I have just launched, ordered our military to launch operations against the boogeyman in that country. Uh Please pray for our brave armed men and women in, in nevada well, who are operating the please, drones please pray for our armed drone operators in a box <laughs> in nevada they we can't afford please,
0: our, please pray that their piece of delivery arrives on time yes
4: <laughs> and we can't afford air conditioning for them so it's quite hot down there in that box um oh and you think about it too uh, so but that, just to finish that point there the fact that uh, yeah, so they didn't have that narrative ready to go which suggests that they were totally shocked by the kind of Russia just kind of pulled back the curtain and it was all done and dusted. But you know when they didn't have an answer for it, so they had a quick in the newsroom. What are we going to say about this? Nothing. Say nothing for a while. <laughs> I can't think. Oh,
3: and that's that's really remarkable considering you know the capacity of the NSA and you know U.S. spies all over, and, and that they didn't know what Russia was doing. Right. Like that's that's remarkable of you know what the the amount of. Um, strategy and planning, and you know, uh, being able to uh, not let their hand out and show, mm-hmm. and it just, it's
0: just kind of blows my mind. Yeah, absolutely, and not just in, in terms of this, the the act of going into Syria, but in the way they did it. I mean, that first week was a show of force. It was, uh, I mean, I can't imagine what was going on, like at the Pentagon, when they bear witness to cruise missiles which they didn't know Russia had, this caliber type, being launched from ships in the Caspian Sea Mm -hmm. over around, over Iraq and into Syria. That was probably like not even ever contemplated. Mm. And it it showed a number of things, namely Iranian agreement, which might not have surprised them, but also Iraqi. I mean, the U.S., they're still Iraq. The Iraqis, they're, they're basically still U.S. puppets. And or oh, the hands are so tied, but the mm-hmm. fact that the U.S. has Bases troops troops country and weapons all over their country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, the, but the still, U.S.
4: made their laws basically in 2004, 2005. Paul Brammer made made laws basically, wrote laws. The U.S. an American citizen writing Iraqi laws that, to a certain extent, are still in force. You know, um, we have a caller on the line. Hi, caller.
5: Hey, how are y'all doing?
4: Hi,
0: Hello. Welcome. Good. Yeah, this
5: is. Yeah, this is Stephen. Hey, Stephen, welcome. Yeah, well, uh, it, um, a year on into uh, Russia announcing uh, intervening in, into Syria to uh, protect that legitimate government, um, I'm I'm heartened. Um, it's been I've learned a lot in this last year by just doing um, intensive investigation, um, finding uh, and befriending actual Syrians, both here in the United States and in Syria, and. Um, you know, for me, I'm very. I've been very frustrated at the uh, the way this this situation isn't just simply mopped up. You know, on you know, hey, just just go in there, let's just destroy these terrorists and let's bring peace to the Syria, the legitimate uh, Syrian people. But it's um it's far more complex than that when you look at all of the tentacles
1: mm. that are in-
5: involved in destroying Syria, Qatar, the Saudis, France. Uh, israelis yeah the israelis i mean this is just a it's really valuable in that if you need to bone up on any issue like the golan uh lebanon um how jordan fits into this this is an opportunity to do so and um unfortunately most people really don't have time to do that good people they have they have they have uh families and friends and they have to attend to and maintain those relationships but uh these good people are critical thinkers, and they, they see through the propaganda. And I will give you one case in point: um, the Intercept. It was formed by a billionaire called Pierre uh-huh. with,
4: uh
5: Glenn Greenwald, uh-huh. Jeremy Scahill, which uh-huh. had connections with Democracy Now. Um, they just uh, put up today a uh, an article, you know, claiming that the white helmets are heroes. Uh, and you, know, and you know that's very depressing. But when you go to the comments, I mean, ninety percent of the people that read are just calling them out on this, man. Good, yeah. And and the they've been they have been so bad. I was banned by Glenn Greenwald, personally banned by him from making any comments when I cornered him on some clumsy statement he made with regard to Syria. And um, but what I think is interesting is that when you look at Ukraine and syria uh you see how bad the intercept has been i mean they 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 post they they post some valuable critical articles but um they are definitely pierre on connection with the state department he was helping fund uh anti-government ngos in ukraine prior to the coup Mm -hmm. and it's no surprise that They don't really focus much on Ukraine and their coverage on Syria, like with this white helmet. It just rips the mask off of these people. And the other one, um, the other media source that is worth understanding, its connection is democracy now. They used to be like they used to be the standard bearer on the progressive left of exposing um, the lies with Iraq and, and U.S. imperialism. But they have been horrible when it comes to Syria, and it and it does go to show. Follow the money. Um, there's Ford Foundation money and Lannin Foundation. And these are arms of the U.S. establishment that underwrite the uh, that subsidize the efforts of Democracy Now, mm. and uh, it also shows that um, you know it's once uh, any organization starts getting more income. Um, people get into lifestyles, you know, affluent lifestyles, and then they'll compromise their ethics so they can maintain that. And um, that's just kind of a uh, that's kind of a cautionary tale in that regard. But, um, you know, I'm I have found uh, Syrian friends, um, intellectuals, journalists like uh, Vanessa Bailey, uh, Bailey and um, Ava Bartlett. They, they are friends of mine on Facebook, but they're still friends. They're honest people, and um, it's really good to know there are people like y'all that are critical thinkers, mm-hmm. that have an ethical core about what you do and why you do what you do, a concern for your fellow human being, and, and having a world that is, is worth living on. Mm-hmm. And um, despite all the um, – and I just wanted to make one more point before I hang up. I think it's very important when we look at Syria to, to understand it from a macro – Uh, vantage point as well. Why doesn't Russia intervene more forcefully? Here's my theory on it. The United States, the interesting thing about Syria and the United States imperialism is that they're in such a screwed situation that everything they do to advance their imperialist goals just simply digs their grave deeper. Mm -hmm. So in Russia, it has the advantage of knowing that the United States financial sector will collapse the economy eventually, we don't know when, and, and also understanding that the United States is in a horrible pathological dynamic with its Syria efforts, that Russia doesn't need to try to like speed this up. And it's very frustrating for people that have Syrian friends and the, they, they're, they're being terrorized by, uh, by mercenary jihadists and fanatics, it's very frustrating, but um, if you look at it from, you know, Putin's analysis is like, look, w- the one thing we can't we, that we will absolutely have to avoid is being goaded into any action that's going to put us in a disadvantageous uh, mm-hmm. dynamic mm-hmm. going forward. So I, I believe that that's that is the the crux of the the analysis on the part of Putin and his. And his um, allies, and that's the why this is going so frustratingly slowly. Mm -hmm. But um, it is such a complicated situation with so many foreign actors from uh, from Erdogan, you know, and and all of these, the Muslim Brotherhood and all these foreign actors like just dead set on destroying Syria. But um, so it's a slow situation. But um, I really appreciate y'all's analysis. I tune in every Sunday. And um, I look forward to listening it. to the rest it. of y'all's show,
0: okay? All right, Stephen. All thanks right, Steve. for your call. Thanks for, support, thanks for the support, Stephen.
5: All right, God bless. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Bye. On mopping up and why don't they hurry up, uh, I don't disagree with what Stephen said, but just to embellish it with some detail, put yourself in the situation. When the Russians began intervening, these guys who were already there dug in deeper. They already had networks of tunnels under cities and towns and suburbs, some of the massive, intricate systems all over a city. Um, They doubled down on that so that they are embedded. Take Aleppo, for example, where their biggest stronghold remains. They're in there holding the population hostage. You're saying mop up. What you're saying is hurry up and blow the hell out of everyone else who's being the, held hostage, by Kill right? all the civilians it's so we just, can make you look bad. Exactly. That, but that's exactly that's a part the of strategy. Yeah.
4: the strategy. The U.S., John Kerry and, and, and different people in the U.S. have actually been exposing their own strategy against Russia. And I have to remember here that the, the fight, the, the war in Syria right now is a war between the U.S. and Russia. And in terms of trying to defeat Russia, um, the U.S. is using all sorts of dirty tricks and covert warfare and it's... Largely, they seem to be focused, apart from their operations on the ground, their dirty tricks and stuff on the ground, their, their main focus, as you may have noticed, uh, against Syria and this war against Syria, or war against Russia uh, in Syria. But also, if you look back over the past few years, you see that it's primarily really, or a large part of it anyway, is a propaganda war. Uh, and people can't attempt to discount the propaganda war, but wars generally, very often, are won on a propaganda front, first and foremost. Uh, especially in the modern age, with uh, the spread of the kind of instant spread of um, information through the internet and uh, you know global global um, telecommunications, you basically have a large part of the world as a captive audience, and the governments of of countries around the world as a, a captive audience. And if you want to, if you want to defeat your enemy, one of the major fronts that you focus on is the is the information war, where if you can get the entire world, if you can. Get the entire world to see, or if you can get your enemy to look extremely bad, especially one that is presenting itself as doing good, or is trying to do good. If you can get that country to look as bad as possible, uh, to the point where the international community, quote unquote, will be just condemning them left, right, and centre, and you can try and produce evidence and facts to back up the fact that back up the, your claim that they are evil incarnate. That can actually go a long way to actually forcing your enemy to back down and go away, and this is something that 's really being uh, focused on by the uh, by the West by the Americans. John Kerry has been up talking about uh, well over the past few weeks the the Western politicians and etc have been talking uh, incessantly about the idea that the terrorists are uh, mingling intermingled with um well sorry the, the rebels are intermingled with the terrorists therefore we can't just bomb al-nusra i.e. <laughs> nusra, nusra being syria and uh, al-qaeda in syria al-nusra just every, they use this word nusra 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 that's actually al-qaeda in syria al-qaeda i.e. 9-11 al-qaeda same people as far as the public is concerned they can't bomb them because they're hanging out with some less extremist-type Islamic fighters. Um, And not only that, but more recently they're saying all of them are intermingled with the population, with the the civilians. And we, the Americans, in our our kind of, uh, in the persona, in our, our great pacifist and humanitarian persona, are not going to attack those terrorists because it will kill civilians. But Russia does it all the time. They're killing civilians all the time. And they're bombing them because supposedly they're trying to bomb the terrorists, but they're not really trying to bomb the terrorists. They're trying to bomb the Syrian freedom fighters that we're supporting, because we, America, are all about the freedom. And Syrian rebels want freedom, so we want to help them. And they're hanging out with civilians, and the evil Russians are bombing freedom in Syria, along with civilians and hospitals and babies and bunny rabbits. They're doing all of those things, and they're bombing them wantonly. And this is why we're very, very angry at Russia, and this is why everybody else should be very angry at Russia.
1: But, of course, it's all a load of BS, It's a very persuasive load of BS, isn't it?
3: Well, is is it really persuasive? I wonder what the average American thinks about when, you know, you have uh, John Kerry getting up and talking about how you know our our friends you know our rebel support, supported friends are intermingled with terrorists. Yeah. I mean shouldn't that make some connections? Like
0: right. my our best buddies are hanging out with terrorists. Yeah. They might not like that but what they don't like more is footage of wreckage and footage of people who are killed or injured. And as long as because they will always be produced by such a conflict And as long as they can show them that, they will never like what's going on. That's the bottom line. I
4: have a State Department answer for you on that one, by the way. Um, Speaking on behalf of the State Department, as I I am now, the reason that the rebels are intermingling with the terrorists is because Russia has been bombing the freedom-loving rebels to such an extent that they've had to take refuge Ah. with the terrorists.
3: Ah, Russia has
4: forced them to intermingle.
3: It's, Russia, it's Putin's fault. Basically. It's
4: forced intermingling. Don't you understand that? And that <laughs> is against the UN Convention on Human Rights. It's way down the bottom in a small print. No country shall force any other person or group to intermingle against their will. It's complete nonsense.
0: On the success or otherwise of Russian intervention, it's basically successful. Because the reason for the current spike in the hysteria about what's going on is because aleppo is the largest city in the country and the last major stronghold damascus is basically cleared of terrorists there's some still some carnage going on in homs but that's sporadic it's not actually in the city at least the, the terrorists aren't based there aleppo though is the last city and that's why there's this desperation from coming in the state department that's why it, Kerry had been to Moscow Kerry wouldn't they, wouldn't they wouldn't speak with Putin they shunned him for like a year and a half you know made it, made this thing about him being shunned at the G20 in Australia and all this other nonsense and this year Kerry has gone there at least four times hmm. that's because he's going to them saying please stop please stop please stop
4: But your answer to that riposte from the State Department should be this should be that you do not recognize moderate rebels that are intermingling with extremists. These are, it's officially known that the the, the majority of the fighting forces in Syria are from 29 different countries. Therefore, they, they cannot be domestic freedom fighters mm-hmm. in Syria fighting against uh, the Syrian, the, the, the brutal dictator, dictator Assad, uh, and secondly, the idea that they're, they keep calling them moderate rebels. These people are attempting to overthrow the legitimate government of their country. That is not a moderate thing to do. Never has been a moderate thing to do. Uh, any country in the West, imagine the scenario that, I don't know, let's use some topical ones. Black Lives Matter or you could have maybe the Nation of Islam, or the Ku Klux Klan, even. Uh, I don't know, there's probably lots more distinct groups in the U.S. that tend to be kind of, you know, a bit disgruntled, or have a history of being, of separating themselves, and some of them even, you know, being armed to some extent. Imagine in America, some distinct group like that, uh, organized themselves en masse, and took up arms, and started to wage a, a war against the American government to overthrow it? Would you, would the American government call them moderate rebels? What would the American government do to such a group in the US? What would the American government do if in that scenario where a group decided it was going to arm itself and overthrow the, U- the US government, if a country like Syria came in and started bombing US troops who are trying to fight against that that uh, insurgent group in America trying to overthrow the government that's more or less what's happening mm-hmm. what would what would America say what would any well, country in the America, west well, say
1: America would call them terrorists they would probably assassinate their leaders they would you know
4: well just look right, at
1: exactly what the Syrian and Russian government
4: Russian military have been trying to do what the Syrian government is fully entitled to do against like any other government in any country is entitled to do against any group that rises up with weapons to overthrow the government it has full entitlement to put them down but america steps in and says you can't do that and we're going to support the people who are who are in your country who have risen up and are attempting to overthrow your government and clear that a group that clearly does not have the support of the majority of the syrian people but we're going to support them anyway let's just turn put the shoe on the other foot and imagine this happening in america
1: well, uh, I take my answer back here. I don't think the modern U.S. government probably would not assassinate their leaders if they were a legitimate crazy group. Mm-hmm. They'd probably vector them into act, committing acts of you know heinous violence and then try and manipulate uh, the public reaction and yeah. increase you know the draconian paganism, laws. Probably. But if they were a good group, and, then they were probably were. would. Assa- you know, if there was a Martin Luther King Jr. Well, or a JFK, or if there were a group that
4: actually posed a genuine threat. Mm-hmm. To the U.S. government, if it didn't have that leverage, where it could manipulate them and all that kind of stuff, if they were actually being supported from outside, like by Russia or Syria or China, and they were sending in lots of weapons to this group in the U.S. that was attempting to overthrow the mm-hmm. U.S. government, to the extent that they were actually a formidable force that could take on the National Guard or whatever, uh, U- whatever U.S. Uh, military uh, presence there, there was in the country, that they could actually fight them and they were taking over towns across the U.S. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would the U.S. do? It would. It would it would take a no-holds-barred approach to
1: it and it would try to destroy it. It wouldn't try to separate. These are the good ones and these are the bad ones. This this right. guy has, you know, he got good on his uh, SAT scores, so mm-hmm. he's a good one or,
4: yeah. or whatnot. And how would they see Russia or China supporting such a group in their country doing this? They wouldn't They wouldn't think too well. Of them. How would the inter- international community see Russia or China doing such a thing? Well... They would they would think this is terrible. The American government's fighting for its life, and Russia is supporting a bunch of uh, rebels inside America, trying to overthrow American democracy. This is horrible. How can Russia do such a thing? So that's just a turning it on the other foot. But that uh, apparently is not what the West is saying uh, about what the U.S. is doing exactly doing exactly that in Syria.
3: And it goes back to you know, what we were talking about earlier with the media. You know that just the extensive control and you know, dominance of. You know whatever the State Department puts out, and you know that's that's the word of of God.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's absolutely ridiculous, as we say every week. But you know, um, Erdogan, what's he up to? He was on first there in the in the whole uh, year long. Um, he played a, played a significant role in the in, in Russia's year
0: in Syria. Mm-hmm. He shot down a Russian plane. He did. Well, just before that, in August, a month before, he began a serious crackdown against Kurds in southeast of Turkey. Um, The Russians intervened in Syria. He supposedly shoots down a plane in November, about six weeks in. And what did he? Yes, a month later than December. He sends another force, but he another Turkish national military force is sent into northern Iraq. Uh, I read it one way at the time, Joe read it another way, and that has turned out to be more accurate. One namely, that mm. the results of that, which are very visible, very public in your face, Russian uh, shock at what had happened, and the response was. Uh, Basically, a complete turnaround in Russian-Turkish relations, which we know in retrospect... Which puts pressure on the Russian presence in Syria as well.
4: How so? Well, because Turkey's right on Syria's border. Turkey has a, vest, has a seriously strong interest in what's going on in Syria. As we've seen, mm-hmm. it's actually sent troops into Syria whose side are they on? Who are they fighting for? Are they fighting with the Americans? Are they pro overthrow Assad? Or are they trying to help or are they more aligned with what Russia's trying to do? Well, well, just means a... if you sour relations between the two, well then they're gonna you're gonna turn them against each other, right? So right. not only is it domestically in terms of any trade and all that kind of stuff and the sanctions that were imposed, but it has a direct effect on on Russia's campaign in Syria for the negative. But apparently Erdogan was smart enough to uh, to not take that bait. Effectively, he had to put a show on. He had, he had national pride and all that kind of stuff, but eventually he, he apologised. And, of course, during this whole period as well, you had all of the information coming out about Erdogan and his son uh, facilitating the movement of ISIS-jihadi oil back and forth, not just oil, but jihadis coming in through this little corridor in uh, northwestern uh, Syria there on the Syrian-Turkish border. Uh, there's a stretch there of about 100 kilometers or something between Jarabulus and uh, another <clears throat> another town. This was where supposedly a lot of ISIS, you know, were being... ISIS members were back and forward between Turkey and Syria. And, of course, just below that is down into... as Aleppo
0: government, effectively. It's right down on top of Aleppo. But then... And throughout this time, Erdogan was Assad must go, mm-hmm. totally in line with Washington's line,
2: yeah mm-hmm.
0: but then, for some reason, someone tried to overthrow Erdogan. Now we're coming to this year just before that Erdogan drops this does the first noises from from Ist- uh, from Ankara that uh they would consider,
4: yeah. Allowing Assad could stay for a while. Transition. They were, they were, we were coming away from the hardline approach, and as we've talked about in previous shows, uh, it's no, it's not strange. I mean, we you had the you had the coup uh, in July, fifteenth of July. Yeah, you had a coup to try and get rid of Erdogan. That obviously speaks loud and clear that someone somewhere, and with the evidence that the there were Western actors involved in it, not actors, actors by the way, but actors as in people who do stuff. Um, there were Western people involved in doing stuff as part of the coup. I'm not going to say actors ever again. <laughs> um, <clears throat> they, um, they that suggests that what the way the wind was blowing in Turkey in terms of what Erdogan was thinking and doing in his approach to Syria was not to the liking of Western powers. So they tried to get rid of him, and that just sealed the deal. Uh, Erdogan was is now probably was already very distrustful towards the West because of the EU and all that kind of stuff. Them not being allowed, you know, them being given the runaround on the EU and stuff, and uh, so it seems that he's pretty much, uh, he's pretty much, uh, you know, come to a conclusion about the West. But my problem is is that this idea that uh, that was back maybe you know from a year ago uh, and for a few months afterwards um, that Erdogan was allowing ISIS forces to transit across the border into Syria down. You know, into northern Syria um, and ISIS oil and all that business. So, this was uh, a stretch of border that clearly, if Erdogan was being accused of allowing ISIS to flow through, he had complete control of. But for the past um, couple of months, actually, um, it began about two months ago or so, or six weeks ago. uh, Erdogan himself is very vocal about it and very giving the updates on it, launched a military operation called Euphrates Shield to secure that very part of the border that supposedly he was using to allow ISIS in and out of. But now he wants to secure it and officially to rid it of terrorists, a 5,000 square kilometer area inside Syria on the Turkish border to rid it of terrorists and also it's obvious that he wants to uh, deal with the the threat of a, of the Kurdish uh, kind of Kurds have been moving across. He wants to push them back to the other side of the Afridis, but back to kind of back to the area of actual Kurdistan to stop the expansion of Kurds because the Kurds are basically over in, if you look at a map, they're over in um, eastern eastern Turkey, southeastern Turkey and northern Iraq and Iran and in the East, uh, eastern uh, Syria. So, he wants to kind of push them back over there where they are to stop them spreading across. And of course, the US has been supporting the Kurds in fighting ISIS, but apparently also in spreading across northern Syria. And uh, the Turkish government didn't like this at all. Uh, So, they're doing a a two track kind of thing now. They're basically securing this area that previously was being used to funnel um, jihadis supposedly in and out of Turkey. So, that suggests to me that beforehand, he wasn't really either he had a a serious change of, of heart. Or he wasn't really in control of uh, internal movements within Turkey, for example, of like the, whatever control you'd need to know uh, or to allow or stop the, f- the, the movement of jihadis through the Turkish border into Syria. And, of course, it's not strange that that idea that a sitting government or president of a country wouldn't necessarily have complete control of the intel services or the military, etc., is, um, is not strange. Uh, and it seems that was it, it, that was the case in Turkey because it was the military that tried to overthrow him in a coup officially. Uh, so he didn't have control on. Certainly, there was dissent against Erdogan. So who was really doing the the, the ISIS oil and uh, movement of of jihadis uh, in Turkey uh, into Syria at that time? If, as we understand now, because of the coup, Erdogan certainly wasn't in control in control of everything that was happening.
0: Um. So And more besides, um, going right back to 2011 when the first refugees began going over the border into Turkey, um, they weren't just Syrian refugees. We now know in retrospect that there was a kind of an in-gathering of refugees from all over the place into mm-hmm. Turkey. There were Afghanis ending up mm-hmm. in some, some pretty nice, some not, but some very uh, well-built massive complexes in so southern, southeastern Kurdish so getting, Turkey.
4: Back to what I was saying near the beginning of the show, it seems to me that while the refugee crisis is real, it has been facilitated and actually encouraged. Borders have been opened. The idea that hundreds of thousands of people could simply, uh, in any country, could simply get uh, through a border in any modern country is ridiculous. Someone lets them through. Um, that goes also for boats. You can't just go, especially in in the boats supposedly leaving I don't think there's really any reports of boats leaving Syria, because the Western coast of Syria, the Mediterranean coast of Syria, especially in the north there, and and most of the coast there is under under government control, and the Syrian government wouldn't necessarily be saying, yeah Syrian people, hundreds of thousands, y'all get in the boats and leave, just go, you know, Mm. just get out of here they wouldn't be doing that, you know, especially in an area that they control, there's no reason for them to go for them to go through the Turkish border Someone had to allow them through the Turkish border, and also the part of the Turkish border that they were going through, the Syrian side of it had to not be under Syrian control. The Syrian government had no control over it, which is true of this part of the border that we're talking about. So someone, some forces within Syria were opening that border and letting floods of encouraging, taking even people from Syria or pushing them in that direction out into into Turkey and then on boats Uh, out of Turkey and over to Greece and dumping them on Greece and giving Europe a refugee problem. But under cover of all that, you have a lot of movement of people, obviously, large numbers of people, but you have a lot of scope to allow fighters to leave and come back, you know, to get weapons, to transport weapons back and forth. So who was doing all this? Well, someone within Turkey, some fifth element within Turkey. And the question also is, why were the Kurds, Kurds have lots of area already in eastern, southeastern Turkey, in eastern Syria, in northern Iraq and even in Iran. They have a big area there. There's about 30 million Kurds and the lines, the borders of Kurdistan were drawn 80 years ago. They were never made official but they don't include the western coast of Syria. So, why were the Kurds not content? I mean, it's a big area; it's more than enough area for thirty million people. Why didn't they just say, declare their de facto state, or in 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 part of Syria or in Iraq, or why, at least why didn't they stay there? Why are they
0: using? Why are they going for expansion? Well, there is an enclave of them in in the northwest of Syria, not on the coast, but close-ish in north of Aleppo.
4: Right, but there's a lot of Turkmen there as well. Okay, in that area, it's not. I don't think it's a historically a. Uh, a big. I mean, they're all further that way. The point is that someone was using the Kurds to try and push across and take that northern, uh, northwestern coast of Syria that's on the Mediterranean. Now, why would someone want to carve out for the Kurds since they're the likely suspects, if you know what I mean. They've got a claim for Kurdistan. Why do you want them to take an extra chunk of land that gets you over to the coast of Syria? And possibly carve out a chunk of lander. Well,
0: where's my papers?
4: Did I even print it out?
0: This is what we suspected was Plan mm-hmm. B. Right? Why is well, beginning of the this point sh- being,
4: the US Geological Survey reported that this is from a few years ago. 2011, I think, or 2010. The U.S. Geological Survey reported that the Levant Basin, which covers Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Palestine, contains around 122 trillion cubic feet of gas and at least 1.7 billion barrels of oil. The Israeli government plans to build a floating liquefied natural gas terminal with a sea-based defense radar system off its Mediterranean coast, extending north off the coast of Syria, while forming a naval force to protect it. What it claims is its rich offshore gas fields. However, as you say, Syria, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Palestine all have Levant Basin oil and gas rights. And Syria shouldn't have any. Because
0: they really are. <laughs> there you go. That's incentive to... That's, I mean, that's additional incentive to get rid of Assad and or...
4: Either get, if you can't get rid of Assad... Uh, plan B is create a friendly create a, state, an extended Kurdistan mm-hmm. controlled by the Kurds across the northern part of Syria, which includes which then would give them the rights to the this a new state. They would have the rights to offshore oil fields because a country's uh, mm. territorial rights extends X number of miles uh, offshore. Okay. So it seems that this is all about, uh, and of course, yeah, there's stuff in the Golan Heights, Dick Cheney's. Uh, I think it's called Genie Genie Gas and Oil or something. <laughs> Genie's a, a board member on it, and they started exploring for uh, for oil. I think in the uh, in the Golan Heights, which is basically Syrian Syrian territory, so stolen by Israel.
3: To um, just to clarify, Joe, um, so do you think that the Kurds were also involved in uh, the the? Basically the border where ISIS was coming through?
4: No, not necessarily. I think that's plan B. I think originally uh, that was just the jihadis uh, in league with a fifth uh, fifth column uh, element within Turkey, uh, a NATO-aligned element within Turkey, which, if you look at the history, has been there for 40, 50 years. I mean, uh, there was the Gladio kind of uh, setup done in Turkey after the Second World War as well. Turkish intelligence was effectively created as an organization by NATO Operators, um, so they've been in Turkey for a long, long time, and there've been many coups in Turkey carried out by the military or the intelligence services against people who they didn't like, whatever. But the the West and NATO has had a, a big in in Turkey for a very long time, and uh, so it make sense that uh, they would use their access there to to funnel uh, jihadi's through the Turkish border into Syria back and forth. You know, get give them a happy meal get them back into Turkey, get them to McDonald's for a Happy Meal, and then send them back uh, into uh, into Syria for, with weapons for to continue the, the struggle. And, of course, the main point, the reason you pick that part of the border is because it sits right above Aleppo government, which sits right yes. on the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. And they've all been talking about the big deal is, you know, Aleppo is the major... Goal here, it's extremely important in the overall fight. Whoever holds Aleppo wins, but well, whoever holds Aleppo, yeah, gets what they want. And the Syrians and the Russians have understood this at the beginning as well, is that, and the reason why there's a battle for Aleppo and why the eastern or the western coast of the northwestern coast in particular around Aleppo uh, of Syria has always been a stronghold is because the Syrians and the Russians understood way back at the beginning, you protect that above all else. Because that's where these people are going. They don't care about, and and most of the actual, I mean, the western coast is the most kind of fertile part of Syria. You go further inland, you get the desert areas and smaller towns and villages. You know, so the whole west, western half, or western third or quarter, even of Syria, is a really important place, and that's where most of the Syrian army stayed and uh, and protected. And that's why it's being fought over because that's where they want. That's what they want to get. They don't want the desert to the east.
1: So, once you retake and recapture and fortify that, that main block there at Aleppo, then you've completely eliminated the geopolitical, geostrategic interest that is you know, the reason to invade and to destroy. And to well, it's not going to stop them, though.
4: Exactly. They keep going. You haven't eliminated the reason. You've just made them really angry. Mm-hmm. And they're going to start senting their jihadis in to mingle, intermingle with the population and mm-hmm. say, come on, Russia, bomb us now. We're hanging out with babies and women and stuff.
0: You're going to bomb mm-hmm. us now? You're going to look really bad. Mm hmm. I just read today that um, Kurdish fighters in that northwestern enclave, small though it is, fought with the Syrian army yesterday Mm. to attack, uh, not the FSA, but I guess Al-Nusra. I'm not sure who exactly, but so it's it's, it's complicated there, or or rather it's not so much as complicated, but any one of these groups from month to month, their emphasis on what, and who they're attacking, and their reasons for doing it can shift. So there you have Kurds doing what they've nominally said all along since since the YPG came on the scene in a big way a couple of years ago, which is okay. We're not happy with Assad, but for the sake of getting do, dealing with ISIS, we're going to cooperate with, with Assad. We agree in principle that that's the worst problem. So, so that just yesterday, still to this day. They are acting on that premise. Yeah, I'll just give you just to
4: follow up on what er, er, on, on the Erdogan situation, the Turkish situation. Um, on Saturday, so yesterday, uh, Erdogan blasted the international community for what he said was inaction in Syria, asking whether the world was waiting for a million dead in the war torn country before taking serious action. He said, "There is more than six hundred thousand civilians have been killed due to war in Syria. Should the international community wait until the figure reaches a million dead?" He also wondered how the Islamic State could exist, could still exist, in many parts of Syria and Iraq, despite a global coalition fighting against it for two years. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he goes on about, um, basically talking about the incursion in Ufari's Shield, where they've gone, the Turks have gone into Syria uh, to clear the border area from terrorist groups. And then he goes on and trashes the uh, the Kurds a little bit, and trashes the Americans for supporting the Kurds, who are, who are, who, are, who see, he says are terrorists, etc. So um, to sum up, our take and on the other the other thing on Erdogan is that uh, when this Euphrates, when the Turks come into Syria, um, the Americans made quite a little bit, a considerable amount of noise about it, saying, "Yeah, don't think it, don't do this, don't do that," telling them what they can and can't do. The Russians were completely silent on it which means they were like, cool, whatever. Now, it may be me just like going too far in my Machiavellian kind of thing, but I wonder if in the same style that the Russians have uh, actually engaged or began to engage in Syria, as in pulling back the curtain and a a kind of fait accompli uh, that was beyond the, the sight of the Americans and caught them with their pants down, basically. I wonder if something hasn't been prepared several months ago between Turkey and, and Russia, uh, to basically do certain things, just don't say much about them, just carry on and do it, keep your know, keep your head down, type of thing, and don't make any statements about it. To reach a particular situation, w- which will achieve a, which will create the, or will effectively be of the same kind of, in the same of the same nature, or in the same dynamic, where suddenly the Americans wake up one day and go. How did this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it is interesting that you know Turkey has essentially you know invaded Syria, right? And it seems like Russia, if they were, you know, they said a few things when Turkey launched Operation Euphrates Shield. They, you know, they said, "Oh, this is a violation of sovereignty" or whatever. But they haven't actually done anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they still have. Uh, they haven't said anything. about we're gonna. Uh, uh, take back our you know uh or we're going to continue sanctions or anything like that they haven 't done anything they haven 't acted on it mm-hmm. but and Turkey is um they're they're making considerable headway into syria i mean now they're they're pushing uh, further closer to Aleppo so you'd think that if they were a threat to Russia that Russia would have acted at some point
0: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um, so as far as we're concerned at this point, Turkey is Participating in the Russian plan to counter whatever the U.S. wants yes. in Syria, okay, but has to do it on the lowdown, okay. And that's more that more or less done. It's it's position yourself between Kurds in the east and Kurds in the west. Mm-hmm. Secure that border, basically that's that would being fun. used,
4: yeah, by a fifth fifth element because that's only that, that that border area is Syria's only international border area. Uh, or sorry, not serious, but is only international border area that they can actually go anywhere with. You know what I mean? Uh, unless they want to get in boats, but they can't go
0: anywhere else. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, and that is more or less the Plan B, as we saw. Because Plan B, remember, Plan B is something that you, the John Kerry, was talking about at the beginning of this year. Um. Plan B, plan. they never specified what Plan B was, but uh, we have an idea now that it was to create facts on the ground, to have some kind of a Kurdish statelet, such that when the inevitable peace process, political process, re- re- gets back on the ground, as it sort of did this year, um, that would be something that would be a fail complete. Mm-hmm. But there's one other thing. Um, Lavrov when he spoke to the BBC a couple of days ago yeah it was a terrible interview but he still got a few things in Hmm. one thing he said was we have reason to believe that from the very beginning the plan was to spare al-Nusra and to keep it for plan B he's not talking about the same thing I think that's fairly obvious but I think in a general sense he's saying that if ISIS get rid of ISIS was plan A at least everyone nominally agreed that that was, you know, the reason for intervening in Syria. Plan B would be, and this is where the whole thing about, oh, don't bomb the rebels, don't bomb the opposition. Please please spare them because they're intermingled with. So if you bomb the one, you're going to bomb the other. I think what he's getting at is they wanted, once a political process was is underway, ISIS is officially gone. They wanted to be able to keep... A proxy force present under the banner of al-nusra or it's it they've changed their name since then cuz al-sham I'll, 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 I'll al-sham I'll because the US has al-nusra listed as a terrorist organization al-force <laughs> but here's lavrov making statements basically i mean and this this is probably a good way to get into answering the the question just how bad is this tension between the US and Russia where will it go from here? Will it escalate? Um, the whole thing about separating moderates from terrorists is that Russia knows damn well there's no such move to be made. The U.S. knows there's no such move to be made. The, U- the Russia's holding the U.S. to what it's saying. Please, please don't bomb them because a lot of them are, you know good, honest, hard-working head (laughs) choppers. Please, 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 let's just just calm everything down here. A lot of civilians are dying in the process. And the Russians are saying, fine, but on the condition that you separate them. And once they got there, they can't do that because it's an impossibility. And this is where we're at with the recent sequence of events. Outright lashing out directly at the Syrian army. For the first time in five years, the U.S. just bombed a brigade of Syrian troops. And then follow up a week later, uh, days later. It was a mistake. Attack the the <clears> attack <throat> on the convoy. It was you know, a mistake. The Mistakes, whatever. And um, oops. like
3: well, the, the convoy, and and as well as the hospitals, and you know, they're trying to blame on on Russia as well. And you know, it's but it, it's a really uh, you know, it's not a direct accusation. If you read any of the um, outlets in the U.S., you know they'll. they'll talk about condemning russia for breaking the ceasefire and then uh, uh you know that that diplomatic ties need to be made or need to be broken and um and just how awful russia is behaving in, in, in syria and then they say oh and these these hospitals are, are you know bombed and and they're inoperable and um, oh you know we don't really know who it was but
1: we, we don't even know if the they were last. actually damaged that's that's in the. That's in there too. They weren't actually damaged.
0: All of these things, plus the ramping up of this thing about, oh, all these poor civilians have been killed. No fly zone. We want a no fly zone now. Impose it. Impose it. I mean, they can't physically do it for reasons we've discussed in the shows. But they're saying all these things, which are things you say when you're about to go to war with your opponent. Breaking off all communication with them. Uh, how How realistic is it not at uh, all no what what are they doing then if they know that i mean they, they, they use, try
3: they try to basically push the limits as much as they can as okay. often as they can yeah
0: they
4: i mean they're not i don't they talk about they'll talk a lot you know um but and, and try and scare people. They're just bullies. I mean, and just imagine a bully—you know—who's <clears throat> all all bluff and bluster and no substance, nothing to back it up. You know, whenever they're challenged, they walk away because—or
3: um, or just hit the random person on the way out. Yeah, yeah they well,
4: punch somebody or, or go home and attack their hit their dog. And they're reality
1: dogs. creators, you know, right? So maybe that's what they're doing—is right. they're just by lying so much, they're going to eventually just tell themselves they won Aleppo. Well, you like, know, why don't they well, just do they, that well, just they keep skip all of this. Like this?
0: People well, in the U.S. are going to be saying to each other, "We're, we're, we're Russia, aren't we?" And they'll be like, yeah.
1: Well the the reality creator thing is a good
4: is a good reference because that's from back in like two thousand four, two thousand five when suppose uh, supposedly Carl Rowe was talking it was somebody anyway, people say it was Carl Rove was talking to a guy, a, a US reporter, uh, Al Suskin um, or Ron Suskin, um, and said he was asking about Iraq and he said, Listen, that's not the how you don't you don't understand. You don't understand. Don't don't bother me with your silly analysis. We're reality creators now, you know. We basically just well basically what he was saying was we think stuff up what we want to do and then we make it happen and then you look at that reality and you try and figure out how it happened you think that it happened uh, kind of cause and effect kind of way that it, that it proceeded from some kind of natural course of events or something you don't realize we made it all up and just made it happen so we just go around thinking stuff like yeah let's Let's turn Saddam Hussein into a bad man. Let's uh, turn Gaddafi into a brutal dictator. Let's turn Assad into a brutal mm-hmm, dictator. Mm-hmm. Let's let's create a jihadi force that we then have to respond to. Let's just, you know, we're we're kind of like um, what's that phrase? You know, not uh, we're they're, they're like magicians, you black know? magicians, they're black magicians. You know, they just conjure things up. You know, and they go and do it. And and you you get you guys, the rest of the world has to just figure out but you can 't figure it out because we have created reality for you, uh, and you think it, it proceeded out of some natural natural cause and effect or something, but you don 't realize that we just made it up ie we just bullshitted mm-hmm. everybody and told them it was real, they believed it, therefore mm-hmm. it became real. Um, but the thing is now these same reality creators are that 's still the mindset of the of the imperialists in, in America, but the problem now is that the, they 've been halted at the level of coming up with the bullshit. They can't, they're they having a problem actually making it a reality but creating that fact on the ground mm-hmm. well, as long as, uh, and, and so they so that's what you're seeing when you see western politicians say all this stuff they're just saying what they think should happen this is what the reality is and then they point to it and go w- where did my reality go they're like <laughs> point their finger or their magic wand and go kazam reality created and it doesn't happen and they're like Pow! say it again go to the UN and do it Pow! Why isn't this thing working anymore? You know, and they're a bit frustrated, and then they get more and more hysterical in their statements. They start to look like a bunch of nutcases. So they Here, start to say stuff that's more and more unrealistic, irrational, because they can't actually follow through as they have done traditionally by creating the reality mm-hmm. on the ground.
3: It's it'll be interesting to see you know how that does spill over because right now you know, we're seeing it mostly in uh, you know in the political sphere. So you know at the UN and you know, with uh, press briefings and, and, and so on. But in in the media, it's, it's still, you know, you just get the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights or the White Helmets to, you know, post a fake picture of the damage that, you know, is actually done by the United States. And, you know, and, and then yeah, that's on the news. That's, that's
4: the reality. There you go. It's real, mm. but it's not.
1: They've used all their juju.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Well, t- t- on speaking about these... Uh, press conferences the, the State Department ones. I mean in the last week the, that mm. idiot Kirby mm-hmm. has, has uh, you know Russians might want to consider the next steps or more Russian planes will be shot down more Russian soldiers will be going home with body bags Russian and cities Russian, cities, Russian will be cities yes I mean he just basically the idiot just admitted that that Russian jet that was shot down last November yeah it was mm-hmm. not Turkey that was mm-hmm. us winking and a nudge mm-hmm. um Okay, but short of any direct hot war war between the two who are actually (coughs) at war already in Syria, what happens then? They're they're reality creators. They're also psychopathic enough. What if they just said, you know what? What would Russia really do if we just imposed a no-fly zone, sent in maybe 10,000 troops initially, and launched a shitload of airstrikes? Mm. Let's see. What would Russia do?
4: Yeah, well, that's a good question, you know. Um, but the logistics of actually doing that uh, right now are, I think, are, are, are a problem. I mean, they have bases all around the place. Sure, they can start flying sorties and bombing the, uh, the Syrian army. But um, I think at this stage after, I mean, it's one year since Russia was in, in Syria. But I think before that, obviously, Russia was preparing the ground. In advance to to be able to pull back the curtain in that way and have it all ready ready to go. Um, so I would say that the Russians are smart enough that they have contingencies, uh, have have made a, or have planned contingencies for 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 uh, our planned responses to that contingency. And I would imagine that there are plenty of not necessarily. S-300s or S-400s there are to protect the Russian air force but I'm, I'd say that the the Syrian army is pretty well equipped uh, at this point because um, you don't need them all across the country because planes, are, you just need them in a few strategic places that were um, like around Damascus around Aleppo uh, you just need some pretty decent quality anti-aircraft missiles uh, and the first American plane that flies across as part of an official we're at war with syria now what well, goes down and then another one goes down and then another one goes down and this is like a p- real problem for the reality creators as well but, but this you see this is their lo- they would announce a war against syria we're we're at war with syria against syrian military well then the syrian military is at war with them and russia's just there like hey listen guys this isn't going well for anybody you know what i mean because this is a problem for reality creators. Because pretty mm-hmm. much America likes turkey shoots. All they ever engage in is turkey shoots. They, they invade and bomb countries that can't defend themselves. That have no ability to shoot down any planes. I'm pretty sure. I would assume. Let's say at least that Syria has the capacity to defend itself against uh, a NATO bombing campaign.
0: Corey, shoot. Well, I was just
1: that reminds me of another fairly big development. It wasn't huge. It was kind of in the background, a uh, low burner. Uh, for the past year, was how the um, the media, especially like RT and alternative media, uh, began comparing Russian versus U.S. equipment, mm-hmm. and the U.S. Um, a number of stories would come out about just the absolute just you know just disgrace that is the U.S. Uh, uh, you know the the products of the U.S. Uh, industrial military industrial complex. Um, there was like the the U.S. lost that that big tank competition in uh, Europe, I believe it was some big NATO tank competition and they just, they were just smoked. They, they didn't even place. And not too long ago, an F-35 just exploded, just caught on fire in the U.S. You know, they, I don't know how much of it is, uh, you know, it's actually an objective assessment of what the U.S. Army, Air Force and everything is capable of. But that was one thing that really, that Russia really seemed to do that, um, was just completely outclassed the U.S. Air Force military. Every
0: I wouldn't say completely outclassed. Let's 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 keep it real. In that the U.S. has phenomenal firepower at its disposal. Um, I hear what you're saying, but uh, <laughs> I don't think we can we can test that. You know, it's, it's definitely something to consider. That's that. that's more like a long term thing to keep in mind. The standards are going down. What, the- what they can do <clears throat> physically with their armaments their options are narrowing, but keep in mind they're still like by far the largest military creation the planet's ever known. Right. But so one
4: that does not get shot down. One that does not ever engage, engage mm-hmm. in a war. No, and and the thing is, we're not just talking about anti aircraft missile batteries in Syria, you're talking about the Russian military presence. R- Russia would stand away from it and not be actively involved in it, but would be lending all of the technological support Mm -hmm. to that, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, AWACS, um, early airborne warning and control systems uh, in the Mediterranean, basically every plane, every NATO-US plane that was flying towards Syria to bombing would be ID'd in advance and information relayed to anti-aircraft batteries in Syria Mm -hmm. and fired by the Syrian military. Syria would, I'm pretty sure that at this point, based on the fact that this came out of, this, this Syrian situation came on the heels of uh, the Gaddafi uh, the overthrow of Gaddafi and the NATO bombing campaign against Gaddafi and uh, that led you know, seamlessly into into Syria that uh, Russia was watching uh, very closely they know what America does they know exactly they have identified the nature of the beast triangulated its position and you know I I every single aspect of it and they know how they go about how they go about what they do we have so, so we have strong... you can say that I would say that their first uh, planning, one of the first, or the first item at the top of their planning list was how to prevent the standard NATO bombing campaign of Syria. Of course, them being in Syria was a deterrent against that, but I'm sure they have a plan for the eventuality where the Americans decide to, let's just go ahead and do what we always do. Let's just revert back to, to form. Mm-hmm i.e. let's just bomb the place. let's just bomb the Syrian army bomb Damascus bomb Assad's palace have him run out in the streets have a bunch of jihadis sodomize him and then cut his throat in the middle of the street let's just do that Uh, that works all the time it's my favourite fucking play man (laughs) why can't
0: we do that oh I have one objection to that Uh, he doesn't live in a palace in his his mud hut (laughs) in his spider hole he lives in an apartment condo maybe but there's no bodyguards Nothing. anyway he should have bodyguards now um There is actually precedent for this never-going-to-happen scenario. Think back to August 2013. They had a whole hysterical campaign about Assad using using chemical weapons. Um, You remember, I mean, we all remember. When that started going, I thought, oh, God, it's a matter of days. They're going to do it again. They're doing another Iraq." And it was about to go. They were weapons hot. We know that in retrospect. I think somebody at the Pentagon said we, we, we were like, the launch button was live. It was. You just had to hit the button and it was go. It didn't happen. I suspect it didn't happen because in the late 2000s already, Syria had um, missile delivery systems. Yeah. Uh, missile systems from Russia. Yeah. Not mm. SS, whatever, hundreds, but sufficient it's enough something. to make them go, oh, Jesus, we can do this, but there's going to be some price to pay, you know. They're going to be able to fight back. So that, that was then, 2013. They've lost some territory since then, but they've been supplemented with more Russian yeah, hardware, absolutely. better tech since then Let, as well.
4: Let's go to a call before uh, we wrap things up a little bit.
0: Hi, caller. Who have we got nine?
2: Uh, g'day, Joe. This is Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Hello.
4: How you
3: doing?
2: G'day, everybody. Hey, Welcome. Neil. Hey, Corey. Hey, Shane. Hey, hey Ryan. Uh, yeah, great show, guys. Um, it's been really good. You've been covering everything really thoroughly, I reckon. Um, you just wanted to um, make some comments about, um, like, the, the way that um, the information warfare is sort of going with uh, the U.S. sort of like, catapulting, like, this intense amount of propaganda. Um, it it seems to me like they've done this all before. The, like, ever, ever since um, Russia first started the campaign last year, the US, is like, they, they had this sort of old Russia bomb hospitals and, you know, then they the bombed civilians and all this sort of stuff. Like, it, it didn't go anywhere and the Russia Russians were always able to counter it. And it seems like they're they're just doing the same thing now. Like the US is doing the same thing now, but the, um, they're they're just sort of like ramping up the the uh, ramping up the the emotional aspect of the propaganda. But it's not really, I think, going to have any like different effect to what's already been happening. Um, and this like. It sort of signifies almost that they've got no no other like plan to go to the like their their plan B has failed in in a sense the the they, they're not going to get this um um Kurdistan split off state that they that they were using they were looking at as a plan B mm. and and the the Erdogan thing's probably got a lot to do with that um so their plan B's failed and then uh, like you were talking about with the um. Uh, the um, Senate uh, hearings or the, the um, Senate hearings. (laughs) That was pretty funny. Uh, Yeah. I I haven't actually seen that, but um, yeah, it seems like they, they really don't have any idea within themselves, like how that, how they can uh, sort of go to the next level without making some kind of really drastic um, overt warfare move. But they know that, the Russians are good enough to be able to, well, they will have thought of that and they'll be, they will have like had all the, you know, all the top generals will have planned for all of the conventional sort of military options. So even if they sort of go, all right, well, what are our minimum kind of plans? We could do a no fly zone and then we could go in there and and try and just like take area, take an area by force to try and secure plan B or whatever. Um, they, uh, the Syrian ground forces, I think, are the, are the, um, they're the key there. They, um, the, the, the Syrian ground forces, are, they're the guys with all the soldiers. They're the ones on the ground that can actually do all of the mopping up. They can actually go into all of these places that the jihadis are in and, and they can clean them all out. They don't have to just sort of send you know, endless airstrikes to sort of bomb them mm-hmm. like only a percentage of them like because um, airstrikes are never going to sort of clear out an, an entrenched ground force um, intermingled so like, Ryan. intermingled uh, yeah, that, that, yeah yeah. That, um, but, but that intermingling can be sort of de-intermingled if um, the Syrian ground forces actually go in and, and de-intermingle them mm-hmm. sort of manually by force yeah uh, so and this is where Assad has got the the advantage uh he can actually with time go in and just clean all these jihadis out and say all right well there's been no ceasefire um you know the americans don't want to don't want to play ball with a ceasefire so um if you guys just keep arguing we'll just keep going in here and like you know just cleaning out all these jihadis and and taking back our land and um yeah then the plan b just gets more and more pressure as it fails more and more yeah so um then and what
4: happened to John on Kerry's on the... head? Does John Kerry's head explode at the UN eventually? I mean...
3: <laughs> well, there's,
2: there's that. there was that leak that um, I just saw um, I don't know, about a couple of hours ago, um, some kind of leak about um, something John Kerry said behind closed doors has apparently come out through um, RT, uh, and they've had some um, professor commenting on it, um, saying basically... Oh, what was it? He... the the quote was something like he actually admitted to um, yes, the, the US was behind the jihadis all along, sort of thing. It was it wasn't quite that explicit, but it was it was very close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this this was only about an hour or two ago. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have to pull up the um, the link about it, but yeah, there's, there's actually some leaked comments by John Kerry about it, um, and yeah, it looks like yes, he's what they're, they're now going to be even under more pressure because they're going, to, oh, hang on a second, we've now got leaks coming out about stuff we've been saying behind closed doors. Um, it's going to make them look even worse. Uh, they've got the the US administration change coming up at the end of the year. And Hmm. there's been that whole probably timeline of sort of like, yeah, let's try and get this all done before the the change of administration, because we don't know what's going to happen. Like it's possibility that Trump could win. Uh, Then there could be a change of administration. It could be a change of um, uh, bureaucrats by the administration that then sort of all, all their cliquey, cliquey war club could sort of be disbanded and, um, or, or changed around enough so that we 'd lose momentum with what we 're doing right. um, the, um, there 's also a lot of economic pressures with the the state of their economy uh, There was that recent uh, report about the Pentagon putting in some um, uh, budget budget request for like a hundred hundred it was like ten trillion dollars over the next or one one or two trillion dollars over the next ten years or something like that it 's like they 've gone. Geez, we we go try and get the budget, get get as many weapons and as much money as we can, yeah. um, while we've got a, a compliant administration, basically, mm-hmm. um, and and while we've got an economy that we're still sort of partially in control of, because um, there's this this whole other thing with um, Deutsche Bank has been happening um, mm-hmm. just over the last sort of like four days or so, um, that speaks very highly from from what I've seen of it that uh, the, the US um, economic sort of warfare team, economic elite, quote-unquote elite establishment, has been essentially saying um, it looks like they're putting pressure on Merkel um, to bail out um, Deutsche Bank um, as part of um, keeping, as part of getting the TTIP happening in Europe because um, the Europeans have said we don't want the TTIP. So they're trying to, I think, use the Deutsche Bank thing to force uh, the Europeans into the TTIP uh, and now sort of Merkel's, but Merkel has apparently said that she's not going to bail out Deutsche Bank. So that could potentially cause like large economic repercussions in Europe, which could also backfire onto the US. So the the, the, the whole economy thing is looking quite unstable and um There's also the internal pressure from all of the civil disturbances, like um, uh, all all the rioting and things like that that are happening with all these police police guys going nuts. Um, It almost seems like these various um, lines of force or various pressures are all sort of coming to a head. And it's like that's probably all been planned in some way, shape or form, but they're starting to come to a head at a point where they thought it would happen after they'd gotten rid of Assad or after they'd conquered Syria, but that hasn't happened. Been so delayed. now they're all sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now they're sort of saying, "Well, hang on, we were supposed to have this done before all of this other stuff started happening, and, and now all of a sudden they're they get, they're going to get caught trying to sort of juggle too many plates, so to speak." Um, well, mm. hideous, yeah, fiery, terrible plates, but. <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: yeah listen Rand, we we we' uh we're running a bit late here we got we want to move on to uh we have to cover our m eight seventeen thing are you watching that no? uh,
2: okay. uh yeah I, I did see a bit of that um I, I'm not completely up on all the details so um yeah keen keen to hear what you guys have to say about that all right give but, me um, three minutes just...
4: <laughs>
3: uh what
2: are you gonna um, say uh, I'll, I'll just make one point. Uh, one, one other point. Um, the the Russian um, uh, foreign minister Zakharova, she said about if the US attacked Syria, there would be a tectonic shift. Right. Now, just to just to get just for fun, just to get a little bit conspiratorial, um, what if you know Russia happened to have some sort of like e warfare Tesla weapons kind of thing like that? <sighs> And and they and they sort of making a making a kind of a hint to the U.S. government, like you know, earthquakes could happen. Like if if you guys start coming in here, that's not
4: a bad observation. I I saw the report, but I didn't actually make that connection. I mean, it's possibly. I mean, you have a
0: deviant conspiracy (laughs) mind, Ryan.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But. But if it's possible if that's if such technology actually exists and and Russia has it, and I mean obviously there's been a lot of stuff in the in the news of the past well forever really but in the past couple of years about California waiting on the big one, you know that kind of thing uh could happen any day and stuff so yeah, I wonder if I mean you would have to be reading between the lines there, but maybe there's someone does read between the lines in the in the u s government you know, and if they saw that they might might have thought. What are the Russians trying to say? <laughs> at the very least, it'd make them get get them, all, get get them all paranoid, you know. Yeah. And then when they ask, "Are you really saying something?" No, no, no. It's just, jeez, it's just a
0: just I'm, a turn of phrase. A, <laughs> I mean, come just, on,
4: just an analogy, metaphor, you know, whatever. And then, and then before that, he just wink at them. <laughs> just an
0: analogy. We weren't
4: planning on doing it. <laughs> yeah, you didn't see that just, wink. So, just
2: just, winked. so I thought, thought that was interesting. So
4: yeah, the, the, yeah, that's that's all. That's all, guys. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, Look forward to the rest of the
4: show. All right, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Well. Thank you for the support. All right, we got to do our uh, MH17. As you probably know, MH17 was shot down on July seventeenth, I think, uh, two thousand fourteen, mm-hmm. over Ukraine. It was, as we wrote uh, in, in many articles at the time, and afterwards, um, uh, was obviously uh, uh, done. It happened to achieve what actually happened immediately afterwards, which was Russia was attacked and demonized in the international press, and an attempt to stop them from, you know, doing what they were doing in Ukraine, helping the rebels there, you know, f- kind of free themselves or gain their independence from a bunch of Western imposed neo Nazis in Kiev. Anyway, uh, there was a report that came out about um, when did it came out. I think it came out last year, about a year ago. The first preliminary report that said yada yada yada. Uh, The Russian-backed rebels shot down MH17 with a Buk missile launcher. Uh, But this is only a preliminary report. Now they've produced a final preliminary report. That's exactly what it's called. It's still a preliminary report because the final, final report will be the one where they point fingers. Mm -hmm. But it'll be very short because it'll just have Putin (laughs) on one page and that'll be it. Maybe his picture as well. But uh, this one is supposedly the final analysis of... uh, how it happened and who did it. And they more or less just reiterated what they said in the first report with some extra details. Um, of course, there's two main points about it. One of them is that the f- that the investigation is clearly a propaganda uh, exercise. And it is fundamentally fundamentally flawed in the fact that the five people, the five countries that are running this, that, that are part of this joint investigation team uh, that have been doing this investigation and producing these reports, uh, one of those countries uh, is Ukraine. And Ukraine all along has been a suspect in the shooting down of MH17. So if you can imagine any other situation where a suspect in a crime was part of the investigation and had a veto on what information was released, let me know because I can't think of any. Um, but there probably actually has been quite a few mm-hmm. that we just don't know about. But officially that's not really cool to do that and nobody would accept that a suspect in a crime would be... In on the investigation and producing the reports about who was responsible, providing a majority. It's like <clears throat> the U.S.
3: police investigating uh, themselves,
0: right? <clears throat> Alan Dulles,
4: yeah. Anyway, uh, but officially, it it makes a mockery of the whole process. The second one is, is that, as I said, their final report was, uh, yeah, this Buk missile launcher came across the Russian border into Eastern Ukraine. The rebels uh, and the and the rebels got it because they wanted to shoot down shoot down Ukrainian jets. So. That's what happened and we have evidence, we talk to everybody, we can't tell you who they are, we have all this telephone and, and, and computer email information but we can't show you what it is. It's secret. We have information in fact about the, in terms of the crossing of the border with by this book missile and it landing in the hands of the rebels and it being fired at the at MH17. Uh, we have the data from that, it was provided by America, surprise surprise, uh, video evidence from satellites. But we're not going to show that. you just have to believe us. And in fact, John Kerry said this immediately after the shootdown. We know that this was the Russians. we have all the satellite evidence, but we're not showing it ever. Uh, and that made it into the final report. Uh, but what they did do was make a computer gener- computer simulation of a book missile launcher crossing a border and firing at MH-17. They made and an they, animation. They made basically a computer animation, and that was the evidence in lieu of actually providing the actual evidence. video that they claimed they had. <laughs> they said, "You know, we have the actual hard video evidence of this, but we know just that going to
3: make a cartoon about but it. But we even it know said. that you
4: prefer they're going to make a cartoon about it because it'll be much more convincing." That's, I'm not joking. Actually, I got to look at this. Intro. This is what they did, and and the other one was that their 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 foundation, their, the foundation of their claim was the Eastern Ukrainian rebels got this from Russia to shoot down Ukrainian jets, but Ukrainian satellite data, which we won't release, but you know, take our word for it, and Russian satellite data, which has been released, shows that there were no Ukrainian military jets in the air at that time. Nor, none anywhere near MH17, and the Ukrainian uh, government actually said that there were no military jets in the air on that day at all. So then the question is, okay, cool. So, you're saying they got the book to shoot down Ukrainian jets, but there were none. So, instead, they don't say this, but this is the obvious implication, was that instead they shot it at MH17 by accident. Let's go with by accident for the first one, because there's only one, one other explanation. So, let's go with by accident. These hardened professional military personnel couldn't tell the difference between a large commercial airliner and a military jet. Now, I don't know uh, about you guys, but where we are, military jets fly over pretty, quick, pretty pretty, often, as do commercial airliners. I've never been in the army, but I can tell the difference. One of them is very big and slow, and the other one small and fast. They're different, right? You can tell. I can tell. But apparently the Ukrainian rebel military personnel could not tell, and accidentally shot down MH17. Not only could they not tell the difference, they couldn't even tell, they couldn't even figure out that there was no jet there at all. So they imagined a jet near MH17, tried to shoot it down and hit MH17 uh, by accident. That's the first possible conclusion, the only one of two. The other one is they did it on purpose. They saw MH17 flying across the sky, no Ukrainian jets in the area. Said, ah, what the hell? Let's shoot down that commercial passenger plane just for fun. When they made that decision, one of the guys said, "But won't this make us look really bad? <laughs> won't it really, really hurt our cause? And isn't it fairly predictable that the entire international community will like be, will like, basically, uh, talk, call us terrorists, and, and and it'll it'll trash our entire uh, rationale or justification for." what we're doing, which is we want independence from these Nazis. We're the good guys. Won't we look like the bad guys if we do that? And the guy said, nah, just do it anyway for the fun. Those are the two conclusions, the inescapable conclusions of the MH17 uh, joint investigative team report. Um, That's pretty much it. There's a few other details, but... uh,
0: I thought when this first happened, the Russian military claimed that there was... They did. ...a Ukrainian jet in the vicinity. They did. Mm -hmm. But and they did, they did and since
4: that they said they found more more mm-hmm. uh, another uh, radar station data and they produced it and they said yeah there, there doesn't seem to have been any uh, plane uh, military jet in the vicinity and the reason I think they went with that was because they they uh, got, read the report or. Because they released this just like the day of or the day after the report, basically, so they got a kind of advanced look at the final report. The Russians weren't really allowed to have much participation in it, but they got an advanced look at it, and they said, "Yeah, let's just go with this because these people are idiots." <laughs> let's pick because our battles. Conclusion, their conclusion is farcical; it's untenable. So we we don't even need to point out that there was a Russian. We don't. We can change our story, on that we can go with them and say that we can discount the the our first allegation that we saw uh, a military jet. Okay. in the air beside, uh, MH17 at, uh, at the time, because this report is just, it's just a joke. It's, it's, a, a, joke. Know, it's a laugh. Mm-hmm. So, um, wait, let's, let's go with that. Let's not stir the boat on that because this report is not going anywhere and we can pick holes in it all over the place. We don't need that basically. Mm-hmm. That's why I think they, they, they were happy to do that.
0: So Putin still killed my baby.
4: Uh, no, not really. Um, Sort of, but it's a joke. Like
0: they're settling on it was the rebels.
4: Yeah, but uh, anybody who reads the report uh, or even gets a synopsis of it realizes that it, it it just it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Okay, there's no logical reason for the rebels to have shot down mh Seventeen because there was no there was no military jet in the air at all. And that's a fairly high traffic area for jets going across. These guys obviously see jets at, as you do when you look up at the sky. You, see, you know what a commercial airliner looks like. They know what one looks like. Mm-hmm. So, But according to the report, the only way that they have could have shot it down was that they just shot it down because they saw a commercial airliner in the sky and decided to shoot it down. That's what they're arguing. That's their that's their ironclad slam dunk kind of case. So if that's the, if that's the final conclusion, then... Uh, it's it's it's, it's giving them
0: enough though to run with the propaganda. Yeah, but they've the done. But the MH17 was as I wrote insane. in an
4: article at the time. This is a joke only. This this isn't a big story. This right. report release mm-hmm. of this report isn't a big story because the goal, the point of shooting down MH17, which probably was shot down by a jet, uh, a NATO deep cover jet, or whatever we want to call it, and there may have been a bomb on board. Um, the point of that. The goal was achieved within yeah a few days after the mm-hmm. shootdown. Yeah. Then it's done. Forget about it we won't care anymore. Right.
3: So Game it's kind of done, been made
4: right. Yeah. Putin killed my baby came out a day or two afterwards. That was the goal.
0: And that yeah. was two years ago that was uh, uh, two years ago. So yeah, and the release of the port this week happens to supplement Just we the had the... Russia's killing babies in Syria. So yeah. Remember yeah. this, M H seventeen? C evidence. But at this
4: point, you know, they've, they've they've attempted to demonize Russia across so many different areas that you, know, yeah. you did this one already. Have you not got something they new? Did it, mm-hmm. They're doing it in sports, yeah. the Olympics. Yeah, they yeah, released the
0: Panama Papers, according to WikiLeaks,
4: specifically to demonize Russia. Uh, you know, Russia's probably just getting bored. Look, You already said that. Can, mm-hmm. Have you not got a new demonization for me? I'm getting bored with that one. So whatever. Anyway, folks, um, we've reached uh, our time limit here tonight. We hope you um, enjoyed the show, enjoyed the discussion. Um, thanks to our caller, Stephen, and... Ryan. Ryan. To our listeners and to our chatters, and thanks to Corey and Shane for being our special super editor guests here tonight. We'll hear, them, hear from them again in later shows, I'm sure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks all. for having us. So, um, we're out of here. Yeah, we got to go. Adios. Right. Good evening. Take care, everybody. Have a great week, everybody. Week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye.